Thank you for listening to this live recording produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. For the launch of the exhibition, Sappers and Shrapnel, Contemporary Art and the Art of the Trenches. In this panel discussion, artist Ben Quilty joins author Richard Flanagan and World Vision representatives Connie Lenneberg and Ralph Boyden to discuss contemporary art and conflict. Hello everyone. Thank you. Thank you for coming along in advance and um, welcome to the Art Gallery of South Australia. This is a pretty special event. My name is Lisa Slade. I'm the Assistant Director here at the Gallery but also the Curator of Sappers and Shrapnel. And this is officially our first public program for the exhibition. The exhibition opened last night, as many of you would be aware, and will be running. It's a free exhibition, thanks to the support of the Anzac Centenary Arts and Culture Fund. It'll be running until the end of January. It's been um, quite a, an extraordinary project that has brought together artists from every state in this country and also artists from New Zealand. And all of the artists have made, the contemporary artists, 20 of them, have made work in response to this kind of question of what are the trenches of contemporary life and our special talk today will engage with that very question um, and I would really love before I introduce the panel to acknowledge that we are here as always on Ghana country and to acknowledge that this land is sovereign. So I'd like to begin by introducing each of our panel members. I'm a bit nervous. I don't get nervous very often as many of you would know <laughs> but I am nervous because I'm in very I'm in pretty extraordinary company and it's a pretty emotional day too. First of all, Ralph Beydoun, and Ralph is a filmmaker and he's working for World Vision. And next, we have Connie Lenberg, who, um, as Ben announced last year, is last year, last night, is uh, the perennial Australian of the Year, pretty much. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> Connie, Connie will talk more about what she does for World Vision. On Connie's left is Richard Flanagan, who is an award-winning author who is, has also penned, to our very honour, a really exceptional essay in our publication that I command you all to acquire at the end of this <laughs> session. If you do something, buy the publication and support World Vision, of course. And to Richard's left is Ben Quilty, an artist who needs very little introduction or explanation in this country. This conversation is one that I'm going to kind of facilitate if needed. There will be time for questions from you. Bear in mind that this is being recorded, so there will be an opportunity to access this talk subsequently. Also bear in mind that we are live feeding this conversation out into our courtyard. So there are there is a quite a large group gathering out there. Hello, courtyard people. Not sure how they see me, but anyway, um, who are gathering out there to be part of this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Can I ask you to join me in welcoming our panel? I'm going to hand over to Ben Quilty in the first instance to just provide some context as the artist in the room or in the panel, some context for this conversation. So um, as you would know, Richard and I have travelled to uh, Lebanon uh, guided by World Vision and Connie was actually our guide for the entire trip through Serbia, through the transportation to Serbia, onto Lesbos um, to see people coming across and in uh, the Becker Valley where we met Ralph and Ralph took us through the Becker Valley and translated and, and showed us this humanity. But there was one thing that I wanted to do first and we, we returned 
in January this year, and at that time on Lesbos there's snow on the mountains of Lesbos, so the people are crossing through extraordinarily cold weather. And we got home, and it was around the time of the Australian of the Year Awards, and Richard and I both called each other, and both had said separately, how could Connie Leonard not be the Australian of the Year? She would, she's very embarrassed that we're going to do this, but Richard oh, and I no. decided that we're going to award her. <laughs> <laughs> Connie runs World Visions Operations in the Middle East. She's worked in uh, humanitarian aid for most of her life. And uh, when we were with her, we, we met someone who, um, a woman of enormous compassion, but who always found time to talk to the weakest, the most distressed, the children, the women in these camps, trying to discover what they needed and trying to do some good for them. And one night Connie confessed to being overwhelmed by uh, the, the magnitude of the horror that was all around us and which she lives with every day. And um, I thought then, I, I, I found the example of Connie and of people like Ralph Badoon a source of enormous hope. I think if we take our compass from power and people in power, we find only despair. But when we look to the acts of people like Connie and Ralph and countless others who are saving so many lives, altering so many lives for the better, I find that an enormous source of hope. And uh, Ben was after a tagline for this marvellous certificate. <laughs> and I, I said to him, I really think in the compassion of one human to another is the preservation of all humanity. And that's what I feel was Connie's achievement. And uh, I, um, I really hope that the Australia Day Committee picks up on our marvellous lead. <laughs> So Richard, Richard made that line. He needs to touch up with his literature, but we'll discuss that later. <laughs> For those of you who have been down into the exhibition, in fact, can I have a show of hands if you've seen the show yet? It just helps us navigate. Great, about half of the audience, perhaps just a little under half, have seen the exhibition. So for those of you who have, perhaps will have a slightly more um, uh, elaborated sense of, of what, what we're doing here, what we're actually... Uh, the fulcrum around this discussion, but I'd just love for Richard and Ben just to talk a little bit about how you ended up there, and then I'd like to hear about the work that came from it and the work that Ralph and Connie do. Well, Richard rang me, and um, <clears throat> and we both remember it very differently. I remember him saying, come on, we're going to go as World Vision's um, uh, guests and to, to follow the refugee trail, but he actually said, what do you think about this? I'm not so sure. And I said, we've got to go. We've really got to go. And I think we're both, obviously it's quite a confronting thing to leave your family and go to a place like this, but then to fall into the arms of someone like Connie, you realise it's such a first world problem of mine to be worried about leaving the safety of my home to be given the privilege to go and tell that story with people like Ralph and Connie helping. Um, and, uh, you know, Richard was 
baggage, but we dealt with it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, uh, <clears throat> I was contacted by um, Stuart Rintel. Stuart's over there. He's head of communications at World Vision, and he felt World Vision needed to find another way to try and reach out to Australians to remind them of what was happening. And he wondered if I might, you know, go to the Middle East and um, um, report back on what I saw. And I thought about this, and my, I had two reservations. One, I was trying to finish a novel, and the other was I didn't know what if I could deliver anything of worth that would equal the investment of time that would be put in by people. And so I, I rang Ben to discuss this, and Ben just kept saying, I'm in, mate. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I hung up and I realised that whatever reservations I'd had, they were of no concern to Ben and we were actually on our way <laughs> to Beirut. This was confusing for me. Um, but I wanted Ben, uh, Stuart to contact and ask me, but I wanted Ben to come because I felt if we were to do something that would speak of the profundity and enormity of this issue, I could think of somebody no better than Ben um, to have as a companion and then uh, as someone who might realise something of long-term consequence. Because I do believe it is, it is in art that we're able to speak about these things in a way that isn't um, ephemeral and quickly forgotten. And I think the evidence of that is down there in that gallery in Ben's work and, and those other works about war. Um, so that, that's, uh, that was how... I got there, um, and then Ben and I uh, got to Lebanon, uh, met Connie, met Ralph. Um, Ralph Claydoun is a, um, is a Lebanese videographer. Um, he's a, a young man of enormous um, heart, and he'd made many contacts in the camp, and um, he, he took us to people he'd been helping. And uh, I, I felt this as an enormous privilege because these were people who had nothing, um, who only had their particular story, and they're very vulnerable. And you could, um, they're easily exploited, they're easily disgraced and ruined in the way that you treat them. They, they had these humble little, they're not even humble, they're shanties built of planks, uh, bits of potato sacks. Um, Polytar bits of um, billboard hoardings, like they might have something like iPhone 6 or Christian Dior on it, the strange, the strange sort of uh, jetson of another world. And uh, when we were there, it was, uh, as Ben was saying, it was bitter winter, there were blizzards coming in. And uh, I only mention this to make the contrast, but I've been invited to Buckingham Palace and sat with the Queen, but I never felt there the honour that I felt when Ralph took me into these people's um, humble shanties. And they sat us down in these damp little rooms where they only had the most basic rug or sometimes just a form of matting and um, a miserable little stove in which they burnt things like uh, melamine or treated pine and you sat there in this carcinogenic smoke that was their only warmth and they told us these extraordinary stories of, uh, of a good life they had that was destroyed by the horror of war. And these people, this nonsense, the, the economic refugees, 
It's such nonsense when you meet people who are fleeing uh, horror, death, terror, starvation, sickness, and are just trying to preserve preserve life, their life and the lives of their families. Um, so that was um, that was our way into it. What would you say about that, Matt? Yeah, no, that's 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 true. Yeah. Perhaps Graham would like to talk yeah. a bit about um, <coughs> taking us there. Well, as a um, as a part of my work in World Vision Lebanon, uh, we host international visitors from all over the world to um, um, highlight the crisis because, as you know, it's this is the sixth year uh, for the Syria crisis, and every year uh, the crisis is losing interest in the public and in the media. So our job is to get it back on the news, um, highlight it more, get more funds to help the Syrian people living in Lebanon, Jordan. Iraq, Turkey, and neighboring countries. So um, uh, it was part of my job, actually, and it was an honor to um, host Richard, Ben, and Connie in the field. Um, when I say in the field, is in the refugee settlements in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon. Um, yeah. Ralph, you're, you're 25. Last night we had too many drinks, and I saw Ralph this morning and said, mate, I don't feel very well. And he said, I said, how are you? And he said, I'm 25. <laughs> Just to rub it in. Um, Ralph, you, how long have you worked with World Vision now? So I've worked, um, this is my third year with World Vision. So you started as a 22-year-old. Yeah. And it's worth remembering that Lebanon, we, we're, we're celebrating that we might be bringing in 12,000 refugees. In Lebanon, the Lebanese people increased their population by 20%. 1.4 million Syrians living in refugees as refugees. In, in, the, um, in the valleys around the Becca Valley and, it, and the community that we met, the Lebanese people, the hospi hospitality that they offer these people is just completely humbling. And Ralph was a, sort of a leader of that in our eyes. Connie, tell us about your life. Well, can I just say, I'm really humbled by this. This is really beautiful, thank you. But I accept it on behalf of all of the humanitarians because... Ralph know, isn't an Australian yet, so we can't give Oh, okay. <laughs> Nonetheless, he's honorary because, uh, you know, there's just remarkable people. There's so many remarkable people who are working in really difficult circumstances every day and whose hearts are really open. And I think that's, that's the thing that we were hoping to share more broadly when we invited Richard and Ben to come to the field because... You know, for us that work in this area, we're dealing with large numbers and World Vision at the moment is assisting every year a million people who were impacted by the Syria conflict. And, you know, they're huge numbers. 8.2 million children are suffering in this region right now because of this war. And they're children that don't have access to education. They're children who are frightened. In Aleppo, the bombs are dropping right now, as well as in Mosul. Families are frightened about whether their children will survive and their future is just disappearing. And so for us, um, it was such an honour to have Richard and Ben travel with us because we could show them that underneath those huge numbers, there are, it's each, each, is, each number is an individual story and each one of those life vests that are so remarkably put together really capture and say something about the individuals. You know, I look at the little pink um, life vest there and you can, you can hear the little girls saying, I want that one, I want the pink one. You can hear the boys saying, I want 
I don't want the pink one. Don't get me the pink one. And it's like those are those those ordinary things that we connect to are there. And both uh, Richard and Ben have brought that back here in a way that we often struggle to communicate in, in quite that way. So I think for, for Ralph and I, it was an extraordinary experience as well. I mean, when we go and work there, we don't, we don't have conversations about, do you dream in colour? You know? And the conversation and the connection with people that opens in that way, and, you know, the beautiful dresses that are, that are Rafter's work, to see her when she knew that she was speaking to an artist, and she said she just... You know, she just blossomed and she said, I'm an artist too. And I've had to flee precisely because I'm an artist. My, my life is at risk uh, because of that. It's an extraordinary moment of humanity. And I think what Nick Mitsevich said last night is that artists really do show us who we are. And, uh, and they do reveal that common humanity. And, and that's always my prayer and hope um, in my work that we can cut through the numbers and the sense of trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong and just see the children and those that love them who just want them to live a life free of violence and fear and want to have hope that there's food that they can give them the next day and, uh, and that they'll be able to grow and be all that they were intended to be. So you'll notice that I um, <clears throat> asked Connie a very specific question and she, about her and who she is, and she talked about <laughs> Ralph, Richard, and me. So I'll ask the question again. <laughs> Tell us about your life. Start with your title, your title as your job and who you are. Okay, so um, my title is, is uh, Regional Leader for the Middle East and Eastern Europe Program for World Vision, and so that office is based in Cyprus and I'm responsible for overseeing World Vision's presence and programs in 14 countries, all the way from Pakistan and Afghanistan through Central Asia, the Caucasus, Eastern Europe, Albania, Kosovo, Romania, and then the Middle East, so the Palestinian territories, as well as Syria and Iraq, and now Turkey and Jordan, and 40 years in Lebanon we've been. So that's my responsibility at the moment. And it's an extraordinary privilege to be able to serve in that part of the world right now with what's, what's happening. Uh, on the subject of art, my, my experience of meeting people like Connie and Ralph and then coming back to Australia made me think how, as a species, we, we live in communities and societies and there is within us a fundamental and innate need to help others. And it, it intrigues me how in Australia we're now denied that possibility. And I think there is such a thing as the soul of a people, and that soul can be shamed. And uh, a poison seeps into uh, a society. And th there is a sickness in Australia, and it shows in its culture, and it shows in um, a certain uh, mood um, of the people. And I think um, even if people didn't care at all about refugees, even if they only cared about themselves, we need to be allowed to help because to not do so denies a fundamental aspect of our humanity. And when I met all these wonderful people through Connie and Ralph, I realised that for all the horror they had to deal with, for all the despair that was daily um, 
knitted into their into their very lives, they felt what it was to be fully human and alive in a way that has become very difficult for so many of us here in Australia. And I, I think uh, well, Lebanon, as um, uh, Ben was saying, has taken in a million and a half refugees in a country of four and a half million people. And the country's only the size of the east coast of Tasmania, 17,000 square kilometres, it's tiny. And, and yet there's something enlarging about being asked to do that and doing it. I've just come back from Germany a few days ago and for all the tensions and stresses, there is something that was liberating for the German people taking that, those million refugees in and you sense it in every conversation you have with a German person. Um, what do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Ralph, I, I was just thinking about Ralph, as, apart from being a cinematographer, was our translator in the Becker Valley, and we had translators on and off the whole way through the trip. But something that I think we both discussed about you, Ralph, was the, his ability not to just translate, but actually bring the conversation to life. And I remember my conversation with Ragda. She speaks no English, I speak no Arabic, but I feel like I had a full conversation with her about art, about life, about her existence, about her children. Uh, and that's all you, Ralph. There's something for a 25-year-old man, seriously, that 25-year-old men in Australia need to meet more of 25 men like you. And possibly next year, as think, a think, new Australian... I think, I, think, I think Ralph's doing his best in the bars of Adelaide. <laughs> so, uh, I'll answer your question in a bit. Lebanon is 10,000 kilometers square. 10,000. Oh, 10, it's much smaller. It's a, it's a very small country next to Syria and the Mediterranean. So um, I speak the language. I know the context. context. Um, Lebanon and Syria share a lot of history together. So um, we, we've had our own civil war 20 years ago. Uh, the Syrians were a big part of it. Um, so we connect. We know how to connect. We know how to engage. Uh, that's that's the difference between me and other videographers who don't speak the language. Um, we've had our own civil war. We know how it feels like to be refugees. Um, you guys know there's plenty of uh, there's a huge Lebanese community here in Australia, in Canada, and Brazil. Those are refugees who fled the Lebanese civil war. So we know how it feels like, and this is why um, I'm blessed and cursed <laughs> to. Uh, to be a part of this job and to connect on, with, this, with the people on, on this level. And, um, you know, they're lovely people. They're not hard to, <laughs> they're not hard to deal with. And, um, and our trip was a success as well because of you guys. I remember Ben, when we first entered to the tent, and uh, Ben saw the children, and he sat there and saw the sewing machine, and he started asking questions, and then Hamoudi, um, Ragda's son started playing with Ben. He started drawing. He he immediately drew a sketch of him and he gave it to him. And Richard, on the other hand, started asking questions, those deep, meaningful questions. And he got emotional. I remember moving from one tent to another, and Richard was like, Richard and Ben were like, oh my God. Connie has been there plenty of times, uh, so she knows the context. She was part of the facilitators of the trip. Um, yeah, so um, going on from a tent to another, I, I saw how they were affected 
by the stories being told. Uh, they were crying. <laughs> I saw for the first time Richard and Ben crying while uh, we left one tent and we, we had to break the interview and Richard was like, that's too much. And we went out and we all started crying. It was very emotional. We, we met this, this guy, Mohammed, who's 24 years old and he has um, kidney failure, so he has to do that dialysis and that's not very nice or accessible thing in a refugee settlement when living a thousand miles away from your country um, in a tent where it snows and the tent collapses sometimes and the water comes in and with the assistance uh, the refugees are getting, you know, the, the people who does dialysis needs a certain type of diet, so this is not um, something they can do. So, for instance, they get $30, $40 for the, for, for the whole family, and they need to get the essential, like a bag of rice, potato, and this is all something those people can't eat. So um, they, were, they were very emotional, and they, they thought something needs to be done, hence this exhibition. Ralph, there's a, there's a perception in Australia that the that, that <coughs> metaphor of intent in the community of that tent, there's always going to be hidden, uh, hidden terrorists. Can you just speak to that from your experience? I mean, you know Richard and I, what we think, but I think it's important to hear that. Hidden terrorists within the community. Yeah, and that's why we're so reticent to allow these people to come here. <sighs> I don't know where to start from that question. Well. Throughout the three years of experience within refugee communities, I haven't seen one uh, extremist person. I mean, people were... Guys, the people I meet, the people we work with, the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, are just very simple people. What I mean by simple people, I mean people who are living in... Awaka, Hams, Aleppo, who were farmers mainly, of, of workers, uh, daily workers, who were uh, just living a very simple, calm life away from politics, away from uh, all the extremist thoughts and narratives. They were living a happy life. They were coming home every day. Every one of them, everyone I spoke with, were like, we were living in a very peaceful country very peaceful way of life. We used to walk the streets at 3 a.m. Nobody used to talk to us. Um, we used to, like our wives used to cook for us. Uh, our children used to go to school, some of them. The other used to just help us with the farming. That's it. That's, that's, that was their life. Uh, the whole terrorism and extremist um, narratives have been introduced to the Syrian people right now and mainly has been fed by the media and exaggerated so much uh, to probably uh, benefit certain agendas, but I haven't seen that in my three years of experience. I remember with Ragda, who features in the, um, the documentary that Ben and Ralph made, a little <coughs> feature and that Kylie Needham uh, scripted, she, she'd fled from ISIS, um, she found ISIS as improbable and as impossible to understand as we do. She said, um, they came upon us 
um, we didn't know from where. Um, they spoke, uh, very few spoke Arabic, but they were Chinese, they were African, they were Chechen. Um, um, their religion was not our religion. They were people, uh, I think ISIS is even stranger to these people than it is to us. Um, and again and again I heard this refrain that their Islam is not our Islam. Um, these people tended to be fleeing both the horror of ISIS and the horror of Assad's very cruel war. Um, in Ragda's case, she'd been um, a dress designer and dressmaker, and um, what we found so moving was in this these grim, grey, despairing camps. We went into this tent, and there was suddenly this woman dressed like a, a flame, in the, the, these beautiful um, colours of fire in, in, in her her clothes. It was everything that goes against our stereotype of, you know, the, the cliche of what a Muslim woman is. But she is a Muslim woman. And she, one of the reasons she had to flee into Lebanon was because as a dressmaker, if ISIS discovered she was a dressmaker, she would be executed because she handled naked mannequins. That's why Ben worked with her and commissioned all those dresses in there that Ragda made to show how these, this such beauty can be conceived and created um, in, in such otherwise um, a despairing and grey world. And that's why they, they have no mannequins. That's why Ben deliberately set them up so that there are no mannequins to make this very point. Connie, can you tell us, you told Richard and I a story that, that we were talking about <coughs> yesterday, Richard, um, of you meeting the Taliban in, <laughs> can you tell us that story? It's <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah, uh, through my, through my work, um, I've worked in a lot of war zones. So I first went to Afghanistan in 1993, and as a humanitarian, we remain apolitical, and we have to deal with whoever um, is an authority in order to have access to the communities that we're wanting to support. And I would like to say a little bit more about the kind of support that we do give to communities. It is dark and grey, but we also do a lot of good. But uh, it was at the time, just before the Sydney Olympics, that must have been 99, 98, 99, and I was in Kabul and the Taliban were in control at that point of time of the government there, and, and I was invited to go and meet with um, the Olympic Committee of, of Afghanistan, so I went along to the great big stadium, which I think is quite famous for the executions and, and things that happened there. And, and normally the Taliban wouldn't talk to a woman, but they wanted to talk to me because I was the representative at that time. And uh, they wanted me to talk to the Australian government about helping them get support so that they could come to Sydney for our Sydney Olympics. <laughs> it was sort of one of the more bizarre things that you know I have ever been asked to do. <laughs> Oh, well, I was dressed completely, you know, covered. I always feel that, you know, the sight of my hair will bring a grown man to his knees when I... <laughs> it's very empowering um, for a woman of my age. You know, I have to cover up my, my um, wrists and my ankles and stuff. So I was very swathed in all this clothing. But, yeah. Right. But I'd love to say a little bit about, um, you know, the... Just picking up on Richard's point about how we're corrupted by not helping, but also how we're inspired by this incredible resilience of, of the children and the communities. You know, when, despite 
all that's happening when, when we're able to run child-friendly spaces. And it happened even in the confines of the tents when we met with those children. You watched them drawn out by a piece of paper, um, someone who was engaged and interested in them with some coloured pencils. And just to see these children, you know, in half an hour start drawing and start giggling and looking shyly and finding that connection. And I think that's, that's at the core of our humanitarianism. It's not hard to help. It's not hard to make a connection. It's not hard to help children because it's about getting people within the community. Remember, we went to a little school, uh, which was just this tiny little room which the community had put a little bit more um, padding around. There was some blankets on the walls and a little carpet on the floor so the children could be warm. And there were teachers from that community simply working with the children. And they were raucous the way kids are everywhere. And it was quite, I remember you were quite surprised by that. They were jumping over the chairs and they took advantage of the fact that, um, you know, there were people in the room that were interested in them. And yeah, it's not hard to make a difference. It's not hard to make that connection. And yet, as a global community, I'm, I'm perpetually bewildered by why we see the barriers as being so high. You know, there are um, pledges that our governments make. And uh, Richard was reminding me last night that this was information which is not generally available. But there was a big conference in London in January and governments all around the world made huge pledges. We need only $1.2 billion, which is not a lot, for a global community to come up with to offer education to all Syrian refugee children. And uh, probably less than a third of that has actually been committed. And these are, these are things that are not hard. You know, you run a school, you provide education for the children, you provide work for um, the families that were teachers back in Syria to actually help their children. And you bring the most important thing that we bring, which is hope. But the other thing that, that I'm always amazed by is the generosity of, of, of uh, people. So you'd be sitting in these tiny little tents and they would scrape together, if they at all could, a little cup of coffee because that's what's required of them. Um, you know, the, and, and what they often talk about is feeling like they're living like animals, that they want to, they don't feel like there's a dignity accorded to their lives. So um, for me, these life vests are so important because we can easily provide different kind of life vests by just claiming who we are as a people. And, requiring our governments to actually meet the obligations that they made decades ago to stop these kind of wars and to um, help refugees, bring refugees who are at extreme risk out of those situations and to enable refugees in countries of first refuge to actually um, be able to stay with the confidence that their children aren't going to starve next week because we've run out of money to provide them uh, the cash they need to go and buy food from the market. Or, or a young woman like Ravda, who came more recently and is unable to be registered. The Lebanese uh, community has been incredibly generous, but they're now saying no more registrations. And if they're not registered, we struggle to help them because we're tied up with international regulations. So we need to break through that. We need people to speak on behalf of that. Uh, and, and that dignity of the children and of the communities. I, I should say, I, I was when I went there, I was um, a little cynical about <coughs> aid organisations, and uh, but when I was there, I was impressed 
by what the aid organisations had achieved. I mean, they did very real practical things. Um, in Lebanon, they're not formal camps. The Lebanese won't allow formal camps. So shanty towns just spring up wherever there's a spare paddock next to a roadside cutting, an old quarry. And somehow aid organisations like World Vision have managed to get basic sanitation and clean water into them. That alone saves tens of thousands of lives. Um, individually, they try and help people whose position otherwise, um, well, well, that's literally life and death choices. Um, Mohammed, who um, Ralph was talking about, this 25-year-old man, 22-year-old, wasn't it? 24. 24, uh, dying of kidney disease. And that was the, the, the bleakest moment of our trip because they were up against the simple mathematics of trying to survive on five US dollars a week and they had to get medicines for him. And they had um, his brother had a little son who was about six and the son was stunted because they couldn't afford food for him. They couldn't afford food to keep Mohammed alive. The little boy had to go without food. And I believe that is our shame because our government, Julie Bishop goes and makes promises of giving this money and we, then they don't give it. They don't give it. I couldn't believe this when I found this out. That's what we do. That's what our country does. It does this pretense of going to an international conference and promising money that means people like Mohammed can live and that little boy can grow and then it doesn't even deliver that minuscule money that they've promised. It is, it is beyond shameful. It's a, it's a national disgrace. Has anyone got any questions? I'll pass, I'll pass the um, microphone to the people with questions. If you could just make your questions very direct and succinct, that would be fantastic. This is not going to be quite so succinct, sorry. Um, my husband comes from a farming background in the Riverina, so he was third generation and in the 70s he was told he had to get big or get out. So like many, he actually got out. Most of his friends now are in their 70s running large farms, getting increasingly older with children who don't want to be on land. It seems to me we have a perfect win-win situation for this solution. Here we've got People who want to be on the land, we've got, as we drive back through the country towns, we see empty shops, schools that are facing closure because they don't have enough children in the area. We talk as a government, we talk about wanting to import, um, to have refugees who've got education. I think we could open our hearts and our country and have a solution that would benefit us all. Can I say something? Mm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's part of your responsibility to create some noise around this matter. Um, we are creating the noise, Ben and Richard, through art and literature. We, through um, communications. You guys need to contribute to this. Make some noise around the matter. Speak out to the government. I think you guys are privileged that you live in a democratic country. Your voice can be heard and should be heard. So um, maybe you should do something about it.
Sorry, just to actually in answer to the question before, there was an amazing Australian story program on Monday about a rural community, Mingaloo, which has actually invited um, n- numerous refugee families and given them land to farm and um, the school's active again, and it was really inspiring. So I encourage you to look at that. Um, I totally understand what you're saying about art. I run art, an art program in a hospital um, and see every day the effects that it can have in supporting people. Uh, in a previous life, I worked for NGOs in various war zones in uh, Somalia and Ethiopia, um, and certainly in Ethiopia up in the mountains, um, especially it was incredible to see over 17 years the whole community live by night because of the MiG bombers by the day, so markets, everything. They built hospitals underground, functioning hospitals. I mean, it was just extraordinary extraordinary, the determination, the resilience, the ingenuity. Um, There was certainly no room in those communities for sort of pity. But um, I just wonder, I suppose especially to Ben and Richard, um, how you place that coming back to Australia and what now? I mean, what what now for you in terms of taking this further? I'm going to move to Tasmania. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, obviously, I think... It's um, uh, it's one of those situations that's so massive, and I just felt an overwhelming. Uh, I was overwhelmed, and I got back and realised that the responsibility to tell the story was just a massive one. And Richard, for those of you who haven't read it, wrote an incredible essay that was in the Guardian. Funnily enough, most Australian media weren't interested in it, so it was in the London Guardian. And it's now about to, I hope, win a very big award for uh, journalism. journalism. So um, that's how Richard got back straight into it, was recognised around the world, and this is mine. But I think in an experience like that, you can't help but it infuses you, it emboldens you. Um, you know, I think there is this thing in Australia that, as Ralph pointed out, we're, we're kind of afraid of standing up for things that we believe in because there's so many people who have a loud voice, because it is a democracy, who smash you down for it. But when you meet someone like Ragnar or, or any of the people that we met, being worried about someone abusing you is such a first world problem and people do need to stand up for, for those people. Um. I genuinely believe, because it is my experience, that Australians are good people and are generous people and they want to help. Um, I think it is, and it is a lesson I have reinforced in these camps that no matter how desperate, how tragic these people's circumstances were, the one thing they never gave up on was hope. And they spoke about hope again and again. And if they have hope, we must not abandon it. But I think what we need to do is demand a different politics, and I don't mean party politics, but more generally, we need a politics that recognises the dignity of each individual human being, and that's what's been lost in the last 20 years. We need a politics that recognises the dignity of a second-generation unemployed person in Elizabethtown, and recognises the dignity of an incarcerated refugee on Manus Island because we have those two things are fundamentally connected and if we don't respect our own, we can't expect our own to understand the plight of someone on Manus Island. And, and our politics at the moment is a politics that only respects wealth and power and that is what is leading us so badly astray and denying us this fundamental instinct of being good. 
Question up the back. Thank you. Hello, just two questions, please, to Connie. Um, first of all, could you just talk us through the daily timetable of one of those families? So we are, when people like Ben or Richard are not visiting, just an ordinary day in that circumstance. And also both of you, um, Parad and Connie, who cares for you? <laughs> uh, you know, the life of a refugee um, in Lebanon is excruciatingly boring if you're an adult. Um, these camps, as Richard said, they're, they're not formal camps, so people have little plots of land on the side of a potato field, they grab what they can get from the agencies to make a shelter. And then if you're an adult, you don't have the, the right to move around and to work. And so for adults, they stand there, they sit there waiting for the opportunity for something to happen and they can work within their community, like setting up these little schools, like um, what we saw cleaning out, it's the women who do this, um, cleaning out the flooded tent in the morning because you know all the rains come in and the snow is piled on top of the tent. It's the children who are sent out to work because they can move around. So the lives of children are extraordinarily difficult. They don't have access to schooling. I think less than 20% of refugee children in Lebanon have access to schooling. And uh, they're sent out to work into the field. So maybe $4 a day, $5 a day they're earning and they're responsible. One of the, the pictures up here of where um, Ben's playing with this little boy, Ibrahim, in that tent that's made out of sackcloth. Um, his job was to go out every morning down to the market where his father couldn't go for fear of being picked up and hanging around the market to pick up the squashed vegetables which are discarded or which fall into the dirt and to collect that and to bring that home so that the family have something to eat for lunch. So it's very hand-to-mouth, very, very tough uh, existence. And we also saw football games, as I'm thinking about that, you know, if the kids have a ball, the kids will get out there and do something when they can. So they do try to establish that semblance of, of a normal life and play, and I think that's the hopeful thing, the resilience that children have uh, within that. In terms of who looks after us, we look after each other. We, uh, you know, we're inspired by the people who come, we're inspired by the people who give, who enable us to to bring something and to make a difference and to be able to say to refugees, there are people in the world who care about you and we're able to work with you to provide the water and sanitation or access to health, um, child-friendly spaces because of, because of the generosity and concern. It's more the concern that's expressed through that generosity that people care and, that, and that's what's the inspiration certainly for me to know that there are people who care deeply and who see the world in the way that we see the world. And the frustration is wishing there were more of them. And uh, that we could do more because what's hard, and this is where I think it's really hard for people who, in, in Ralph's position, because he's the one who takes the stories to share the stories, both of the good and the work that we do and that are, we're able to deliver, but also of the need that's unmet. And so Ralph does that day in and day out, and that's incredibly hard. And I've watched our communicators in Lebanon, Ralph and Patricia, and in the other countries just break down at times because they're the ones who, who keep hearing the story and 
and feel like, how do I respond? And they're not always, and often they're not able to respond to, to what's needed. So I certainly worry about, about them. Um, if, if you want to know a little bit more about the daily lives, um, the essay I wrote, you can either, you can access it online, and it gives more detail about many of these stories. You can buy it as a little book with Ben's uh, beautiful illustrations in it, and all the profits from that book go to World Vision. The, um, the little boy Connie was talking about, who was six years old, that was a family of ten, and um, re registered refugee families get five US a week, five US dollars a week per person, per person to a maximum of five. The, the families defined as five people. So for ten people, they were living on twenty-five US dollars a week. What that little boy scrounged when he had to walk these couple of kilometres back, they lived in a house, or a house, a tent made of potato sacks. I have a photo. This is the boy, this is the family. Oh, that's him. That's the family. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was the family. And the, the little boy had a brother who was nine, I think, who worked seven days a week in a welding shop illegally. And there was, a, there was you would have, in that brief picture, there was a girl in a, a sort of green dress, a young girl. And that girl was 13 years old and being married off because they couldn't feed her. The, 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 these are the terrible choices people are presented with. Um, and, I, and as for the, the good question, who cares for people like Connie and Ralph, it is, uh, Ben and I were just, you know, we dropped in and it, it overwhelmed us in a few short weeks. Um, I, I think they deserve, people like Ralph and Connie deserve the, the greatest honour because, um, you know, they, they do, they do work that actually makes a real difference. But all the, the largeness and the seeming impossibility of it are there changing and saving lives. It's, it's no small thing. Pass it in. It's okay. We'd love to record you. Um, I have a question for you, Ralph. I, you know, just as we sort of see people become more entrenched in their views, I'm just wondering for you as a communicator, how do you sort of cross that barrier to sort of try and, you know, um, get people to listen, you know? Keep people listening? Sorry, say again? Yeah, just to get people to listen to the stories. Because, you know, we're all here listening to you, but a lot of people already have an idea of these particular people. How do you cross that barrier and get them to recognise the dignity? It's, it's becoming harder and harder every year, especially we're becoming to the sixth, sixth years of the crisis, so it's losing interest. So we're trying to find creative ways, but it's becoming harder, especially with the increasing um, narrative around the globe uh, against the refugees, against the, um, you know, the whole thing. So um, it's becoming hard. It's harder now. Uh, we're trying our best. This is why we're creating new ways, such as writing books, um, doing art, creating movies, and pitching to 
to people like you. So, um, and I'd like to ask you, Ralph, how, how are you able to use your video? Sorry? You, you make video, yeah. I assume, and how are you able to use that? Where can it be shown? How do you... Um, well, through various platforms. Uh, one, we have our Word Vision platforms. We uh, show the videos on them. And um, we try to pitch to media when there's news. So, for instance, um, when we're in Serbia, um, on the borders between Serbia and Croatia, uh, I, I believe that was a historical moment when the refugees fled to Europe. And we will remember this, this moment. This will be scarred into history. Um, so that was newsworthy. When Alan Kurdi, the little boy who died on the shores of Greece, um, this, is, this is what grabbed the media attention. So we had a gateway through the TVs and news outlets to, to pitch those videos. Unfortunately, stuff like that, events, very bad events like that, give us opportunities to pitch. This is how it works, because people don't listen unless there's something very bad happening. And this is how it was, this is, that, uh, this, this is how it has been for the, the past five years. So unless there's an attack on Aleppo or in Mosul or Alan Kurdi or others, other events like that, we don't get any media attention. This is why it's a huge responsibility for people like you to always talk about it. Talking is huge. Um, I haven't seen the exhibition yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And um, the part that's really interests me is the fact that you've uh, had Ratna uh, make these beautiful wedding dresses. So you identified, you know, discovered someone with an amazing creative talent. And I wonder, have you thought and have you found more people who are in these camps that have these um, creative um, talent that you can possibly give a voice and continue to have um, work produced, exhibited, shown, you know, that, um, just a question. Well, who knows, who knows what talent <coughs> is amongst those six million people who fled Syria. But I'll, I'll just give you one name of the son of a Syrian migrant, Steve Jobs, you know, I mean, who knows what, what wealth of talent, of possibility for all humanity lies rotting in those camps? And I mean, that would be extraordinary. It is six million people greater than the population of Sydney. There would be every possibility of human beings amongst them, but there's very little outlet for it. Uh, if they're allowed to come to countries like ours, then they would have, there would be the possibility of enriching, um, of having a life themselves, but enriching us all. You know, <clears throat> when you're a refugee, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there, there are plenty of poets, um, uh, musicians, people like Raida in refugee settlements around Lebanon, but when you're a refugee, you don't prioritize this. This, become, this drops to the bottom. You, the priorities would be like, um, getting food, 
um, taking care of the children if there's any. Uh, during the snowstorm, staying up all night, removing the snow off the, of the ceiling, <laughs> those becomes the priority. Even we struggle with wash programs just to re remind the mothers the importance of the hygiene because even hygiene becomes the last priority. Uh, so, someone asked, what is it, what is it like um, on a, living in a day in a refugee settlement? Well, there's not much to do. Um, they just sit, sit around, hearing the news on the radio probably, back in Syria, knowing what's happening, and they're just holding on to the second they go back, they want to go back. Um, so everything else becomes very shallow. Nobody wants to, to write or design. Ragda has been lucky to meet Ben and Richard. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of others who aren't. There's a lot of creativity in, in the community. I mean, Syria wasn't a poor country. It was a middle-income country. Uh, beautiful cities, ancient um, heritage. And one of the things that as an international community we, we said we would do in in London earlier this year was that we would enable those refugees to work, to have the dignity of work in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey. And that's another promise which hasn't been fulfilled. But part of the reason why it hasn't been fulfilled is because each of those neighbouring countries is so overwhelmed with refugees and they're impacting on their own communities. So at the bottom end of Lebanese communities, the day labourers, the poorer communities are now in competition with an equal number of very poor Syrian refugees and children are working and so they, they get paid even less than anyone else. So adults are competing with children who, who are so desperate to survive that even three, four dollars a day, which doesn't go a long way in Lebanon, is what they're working for. Uh, there have been some small projects for economic <coughs> development and the creativity just comes out, allowing refugees to stay where they, they are. And you know, the, the, coin, the, the term I've coined recently is half-hearted humanitarianism. It's like we care, but we don't care enough. So when the flood, as Richard called it, the, you know, the, the Syrian exodus to Europe happened, just before that, the United Nations World Food Program was running out of money and we're a partner to them. We provide the cards which enable the refugees to have the $30 um, a month, that are, the $25 a month that are put on for every person in that family. Um, so they can then go and shop in the local businesses. But that was cut, you know, it was cut so they were getting um, only up to five members of the family, regardless, you know, the size of your family. So those people pick up and move because they have no guarantee that n the next week or the next month they'll have the strength to pick up their children and start moving towards Turkey and trying to buy some life vests and hop on a boat in the freezing cold and try and make it to safety. So, you know, if we could find a way to help unleash that creativity, and uh, to enable that, that would make a big difference to, the, to what they're looking for, which is hope and dignity uh, and some semblance of life while they're waiting because they, they all want to return. 99% of people want to return. You know, Muhammad uh, talked to us, you know, Richard was, was asking him what he missed and he said he, he missed the olive tree next to his father's grave and sitting there. I mean, he was blind, not only did he have kidney disease, it had made him blind, but 
to sit there under that tree on the land that was his family's land. That's what they all want to do, you know, and, and we have the opportunity to enable that by, by supporting the talent that is extraordinary, the same as it is in any other country. Okay, we are out of time, but I want to offer the panel any closing remarks. Anything to say? I would like to share. I would like to share a small story. Um, speaking uh, of the exodus that happened, um, when I was on the Serbian-Croatian borders, um, I reached out to this guy. I saw this this father with his family um, sitting around a fire that they set up during the night. Um, the borders were closed for two days due to bureaucratic issues between the governments. So they were stuck there under the rain. It was cold, and I reached out to this guy and I told him and I asked him. Why did you leave? Why did you leave your country? And um, he told me, I'm 55, I'm from Iraq, and I've never known peace in my life. So. I'd just say, I think, the point where it all came home for Ben and me was in a Serbian transit centre. It was about minus 15 outside, and people had been, I don't know how many days on buses. Those with images. Yeah, and they, they, they got taken off the, the buses at this transit centre, um, given some, some food and water and a toilet stop and that, and then they were taken up to trains to go to the next leg through Croatia. Um, and we met a little girl called Heba, who was the most angelic looking child. Um, and she was such a sweet little kid. And um, we got a drawing, and she did this drawing of a helicopter gunship, one of the SADS helicopter gunships, barrel bombing um, people. And they were just. Uh, it was all dark and black, she only used dark colours, except for red, for the blood of the dis dismembered limbs. And you, I said to her father, has she seen these, th has she seen these things? And um, he said, of course, they've all seen these things. A and I think if that family knocked on your door and asked for help, of course you would give it. And that's, to me, the issue is as simple as that. Uh, my wife Maida was conceived in a refugee camp in Austria, um, the daughter of Yugoslav refugees. I have a photo in my study of my three daughters, the granddaughters of those refugees, looking over the mountain pass where their grandparents fled all those years ago, the same mountain pass to where Heber and her parents were now heading, fleeing horror. And I just think if we can't help those people, then who are we? Heber's drawing is in the exhibition. You'll see it in the show, if you haven't already seen the show. Please join me in thanking our extraordinary panel. Ralph Baydoon, Connie Ladenberg, Richard Funnigan, Ben Quilty, and a big thank you to our two Auslan interpreters as well. Thank you.